Welcome back to Deep Thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. I finally grown enough of my hair back from the summer cut that I, I can actually film with it down. Today's episode is going to be interesting because it's going to be a sort of a dual dimension episode where I'm going to use the arc and storyline of A Twilight Zone out of fourth season, episode 10, called No Time Like the Past, in order to illustrate something that was in the minds of people in the 60s. It's 1963, as a matter of fact. Because they had the same feelings as we have today. And they thought the world was going to end and all this other stuff. And so we're not sure exactly what took place. Could be that it was always a scare tactic, which is my opinion. But it also could be that good people fought. Uh, mentally fought, you know. Just the camera there. Now, if you're not familiar with Twilight Zones, what's very interesting about them is that the writing is second to none. Absolutely second to none. Now, there are a couple episodes that seem to be repeats of each other. And it's almost as if they wrote a script and said, uh, you know, there's path A and path B. There's a, there's a fork in the road. Sometimes there's three forks in the road, right? And so they sometimes retell the story to go down a different dimension. It's interesting. But this is an episode about a gentleman, and there's spoilers in here, who is on a team that created a time machine. It seems to be pretty secret. Uh, there's only two guys operating, and, and well, one guy operating, one guy experiencing this. One is an older gentleman, probably in his uh, late 50s, early 60s. And he's sort of the older guy that you get the impression that uh, he may have been on the project first. And then a younger gentleman named Paul Driscoll, who is a mid-40s gentleman who uh, seemingly has been to war. This would have been him probably being in uh, World War One or World War II, excuse me, maybe the Korean War. And he has grown very disgruntled with the world. Sounds very familiar. Wait till I read you this, his little dissertation before his first time travel experience. He is painting an image of the world that is extremely similar to how I would personally paint an image of the world today. If I was so gifted in poetic uh, tempo, right? So here's what, here's what is interesting about Twilight Zones in general. And I really feel for anyone who thinks it's just some show. Uh, you know, it's that old show, just like Leave it to Beaver or whatever. I can tell you unequivocally, having ingested probably in the last three years, nothing shy of uh, probably 400 movies. A lot of classics, a lot of horrible movies. A lot of television. I consume radio, like old radio there's nothing like the Twilight Zones from 1959 to 1964. I was once told it went to 65, and I misquoted for a really long time, but it ended in 64. No big deal. Rod Sterling was trying to hide inside of a science fiction wrapper a bunch of truth that the censorship at the time would have stopped him from doing. And nothing as today's censorship would be uh, 
you know, all the explicit content that you wouldn't want your children to see anyway. For Rod, what censorship meant, meant for Rob was the truth, just like the censorship of today, right? So as we get closer to telling any any kernel of truth that gets them off, gets the globalists off their Agenda 2030 path, okay, they'll come after you and censor you. They never censor lies. They only censor the truth. I mean, above on, on average, right? It's like they'll let you make fun of yourself if you're going to say you think that uh, Devil's Tower is a tree. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go for it. Let's put a big scarlet letter over Captain Moron here. But when you want to say, oh, you know, I think that little drink they gave us a few years ago has killed over 100 million people, and it's going to continue to knock them off, you know, with heart issues, well, then they'll come after you. All right. You get the point. When an episode is written by a writer, never forget that you're listening to the writer. And so this particular episode is written by Rod Serling. Now, all the writers on Twilight Zone, if they even got, well, I put it this way. If a writer gets two or more episodes on Twilight Zone, they're usually just guaranteed bona fide amazing people. Rod wrote half of them. Okay. Rod is talking to us through this dialogue I'm about to read to you. Setting up the scene, there's a kind of a cylinder, about a 15-foot cylinder, and on top of that is a bunch of electronic equipment. You have to climb up on a ladder just like you would in some sort of storage tank. Coming down from that on both sides of the cylinder is two wires that go down to a platform, and you have these little glass or, you know, I don't know, about the size of a grapefruit, Glass spheres every uh, three or four feet. It's some hokey, you know, cool, minimalistic, this is a time machine. That's all you need to understand. And it always works. It always works for the mind. It's, it's just beautiful. But Paul Driscoll is standing on a platform, and he's the guy that wants to do a bunch of time traveling because he has a goal. And his buddy Harvey is up on the platform. And Harvey's like, why do you want to do anything at all? You're, you're going to go do some stuff. And Harvey kind of barely understands at this point what Paul's got in mind. Paul wants to try and change three pivotal moments in history, as according to 1963, to help the world avoid pain and suffering. Harvey's like, hmm, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's a good idea. So Harvey says, well, you know, what's so bad about today that you think you got to go back and change everything? And Paul, being not only technically wise, but wise in the ways of the world, which is what Rod Serling was. Rod Serling was nothing shy of, a, what, I think he's five foot four, absolute badass in the Army. Uh, he was an Air Corps. Go read his history about the stuff that he did. I got a buddy of mine who's like a huge war buff. And he didn't know that Rod had done all these things. And I said, well, you should look him up. You know, you got your own opinions. But he's, he knows all the heroes of history. And he reads Rod's uh, bio and he's like, oh my gosh, this is nuts. This guy was crazy, amazing guy. He eventually got injured. But he was too small. Uh, initially, they said he was too small to do like uh, airborne stuff. And he's just like, hold my mic, you know. So the first banter between Harvey and Paul is simply indemnifying 
Harvey from any responsibility if something goes wrong. Very flowery, very amazing. Now, before he gets into sort of his observation of what he thinks man has devolved down into, he says something very, very interesting. This is 1963. You know how on our show, my episode of Toxins got completely banned and removed. It's on the, it's on the website. Go to deepthoughtsradio.com. Go into the remove from YouTube category just, or type toxin, toxins in the uh, search field. But it's all the stuff. There's another episode called Codex Elementarius, which is a crazy name for an episode that talks about the world movement, the world trade organization controlling your food supply. But listen to this dialogue from 1963. Paul is kind of painting a picture for Harvey about just how, how great it is here, right? In the 63. He said, did you drink milk this morning? What was the strontium content? Has it occurred to you that the things you're eating might be turning your bones into sawdust? He says, oh, Harvey, speak to me of jeopardy if you will. But don't make it sound as though, as if I have an exclusive franchise on the calculated risk. You and I share this dubious distinction with several million peers who inhabit the 20th century. And you don't care for the 20th century, Harvey says? He says, I do not, Paul replies. And here we go. I will tell you succinctly how I classify the times. We live in a cesspool, a septic tank a gigantic sewage complex in which runs the dredge, the filth, the misery-laden slop of a race of man, his hatred, prejudices, passions, and violence, and the keeper of the sewer, man. He is a scientifically advanced monkey who walks upright with eyes wide open into the abyss of his own making. His bombs, fallout, poisons, radio, uh, radioactivity, everything he designs as an art for dying is his excuse for living. I always tell you guys that we're worshiping, most people worship their own demise, right? You guys know that's true. Maybe all the more grotesque by the fact that we don't recognize it as insanity. So he's playing counterpoint. Harvey looks down at him and says, did, you, did it ever occur to you that some of these scientifically advanced monkeys make bombs as a, simply, a simple expedient for survival? That across the planet, there are other scientifically advanced monkeys who would pulverize us into dust if they thought they could with impunity? And then Paul kicks back in. He says, I don't need a lesson on current affairs. I'm pretty well up on the times. The freedom-loving monkeys making bombs while the aggressors make bombs. But ultimately, someone pushes a button. And just as ultimately, the earth disappears. And all of this, I suppose, is right and practical and expedient. A few germs will rise out of the rubble and wave a microscopic flag of victory and shed a few microscopic tears for the race of men. Harvey, are you content with this kind of status quo? Are you satisfied with this kind of 20th century? Now, why am I reading this to you? Why are you listening? Well, there's a couple little catchphrases. One of them is, no country for old men, which stands for old women too. And the other one is that we've talked about, and I've done a whole episode on it, is that as you get older, you think about end times. It's, it's some people do. 
the more more religious you get, I think you get more trapped into the end time consciousness, right? Now, when I grew up, they always used to say that everyone in the 50s worried about a nuclear war. Duck and cover, they used to say, right? And I wasn't sure if that was real until I met a buddy of mine who's 80 years old today. And he said that he used to live in Utah. And they used to announce on the TV that nuclear bombs are going to be going off in some test site that's literally so close that when the bomb went off, they could, he could look out his front window or his bedroom window and the lights would go into the sky. And he would cry himself to bed because he uh, thought he was going to die of a nuclear bomb. Because they're literally going off near enough to his house. He can see the lights in the sky. His father was a test pilot. He became an extremely famous person in Hollywood. So it was extremely real. And I've met plenty of people after that. But when he told me that story, this is not a cowardly person at all. He's a man's man, if anything. But he was a little kid, you know. It was real for them. And then it all, what happened? You know, we get into the 60s and it kind of just, everybody gets tired of that narrative of being told they're going to die from a new super weapon. Today, what they do is they green light tons of television shows and movies that just have tons of atomic bombs in them. It's almost like an Ed Wood thing. We've got to be a bomb at the end, you know, big explosion at the end, right? They just greenlit that stuff. And so everyone sees it and gets a little horrified and, and it kind of juiced back up. To say, well, you know, it's really weird. You know, could they kill us all? Could it be like that? And of course, there's people that have done a lot of due diligence on atomic bombs in general. And they're kind of like, well, you know, I know they faked a lot of footage of the house is being knocked over, you know, a lot of this test footage, it just doesn't make any sense. Way back, you know, in the 40s. And then, of course, you have Bikini Island stuff. But you have to understand, when they say 10 megaton bomb, what that means is if you stack up 10 megatons of TNT and you pop it, nitroglycerin, and there's all kinds of movies and videos where they built these geodesic domes full of TNT to get the big, you know, round hydrogen-looking explosion. They've even done them in cylinders, I've seen. I've watched these videos. You can see them online. They utterly tested what it would look like to stack up a kiloton. But when you're the military, you can make a megaton, 100 megaton, just keep blowing stuff up, and it's going to freak everybody out. And yes, it's destroying Bikini Island. It's destroying these other locations. In terms of like fallout and that kind of stuff, well, I don't know. What happens when you put together that much TNT? Do you get weird flakes of compressed matter in the sky? Probably. Would you get radiation? Seems like you wouldn't, but then again, when you create that much thermal energy and blast it into the atmosphere, you are going to atomically disturb what wasn't disturbed before. And who the hell knows, right? Why don't we drink Drano? Because it'll dissolve us. It's an acid, right? Well, a lot of... When you excite the atmosphere and all the ethereal matter that makes up the universe, you are just utterly ripping to shreds the, uh, the currents that make up all discernible matter. The whole e energy is matter, matter is an energy thing, uh, which I think even Newton came up with that theory. And of course, Eagles MC squared was in the Zurich Patent Office a year before Einstein was ever born. Don't get that confused. And the conversion algorithm. You know, who knows? But here's the key. It doesn't matter if atomic bombs are real or not. If they want to, just like other events that happened in 2001, if they want to spend a whole bunch of time 
and they buy some, let's say they buy a big giant warehouse in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco. And they just, you know, in the middle of the night, they just keep delivering stuff and delivering stuff and delivering stuff. And it's just a gigantic mountain of TNT. And they pop it. And it blows the living crap out of everything in that area, killing all kinds of people. And then in terms of like radiation and all that stuff, they're just going to tell you that's what it is, right? It's just like the movie Close Encounters, right? When they said the Devil's Tower had a plague on it. Richard Dreyfuss is like, man, I don't know, I don't know. We'll see. And they all had these birds in these cages. And of course, the military is ready to zap the bird with a little puff puff on the side. And say, see, your bird died. See, you know, it is here. Don't take your mask off. But eventually, Richard Dreyfus goes, F this, pulls it off, and runs. And it was all fake thing. Don't expect them to not do that little thing. Rod Serling really believed that the nuclear bomb was real. The atomic bomb, I should say. And he believed that there was a true potential. And of course, he's living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. He really believes that everyone could die of this of this Holocaust. Plus, he had such an elevated IQ and an elevated perception of the world and people. Who knows how the hell he got this, right? The dude only lived to be 50 years old. You realize that? He died in 1975. Okay. So he was 40 by the time the show was concluding, maybe 41 or so. So he is conceiving of the Twilight Zone in his mid-30s. It might have been based on X minus one, as I've often said, but whatever, you've got a concept that you're going to create a little twisty turny show, you still got to write the scripts. And we have proof that these are exceptional scripts. And everyone involved in production was the head of their game. Therefore, it translated beautiful to us. Everything was executed perfectly, okay? But Rod is talking through this Paul Driscoll guy. Now, just to have a little bit of fun in the episode, I'll take you through the episode real quickly. Because it's a little bit of a can-you-alter-time proof. And then there's kind of a big message at the end. What Paul Driscoll tries to do is go back and alter history in three key moments. He tries to get the people of Hiroshima to evacuate. He tries to assassinate Hitler. And he tries to get the captain of the Lusitania to turn his boat just a little bit in different direction, 1915, so that we don't get in World War I. Obviously, you know about Hiroshima. Um, he was held the way that the episode's written. I just rewatched it. It's more brilliant than I re- initially remembered. He was held in uh, prison for six hours before he was allowed to talk to authorities. So he actually got there in enough time to, to tell them, and if they believed them, they could have evacuated most of the people out of the city. Instead, they held him to the last second. He tells this Japanese dude, who's really cool, hey, man, you got you to gotta get everyone out of here. And he's like, he gets his phone call, and the, and the phone call says, um, he says, there's just one B-29 up there. Nothing's going to hurt us. He's like, man. Now, what's weird about it is that Paul never told the guy it's an atomic bomb. It's got, it's doing fission. You don't even understand. But they're trying to plot twist it so that, you know, he doesn't reveal too much. When he gets to this uh, beautiful hotel room overlooking Hitler and Goering appearing for the crowd in 1939, must be a very specific day. I I don't know. The footage is, footage of Hitler and Goering are actually, been, has been spliced into the um, 
episode. But our guy Paul tries to take the shot, gets sidetracked by a uh, maid, which is an absurd concept. He told the woman, I don't want any of your stuff, stay out. And he should have just stuck with his guns. He tries to take one shot, the bullet uh, misfires, it doesn't go, and he pops the bullet out, puts a new one in, and then they, uh, this woman starts persisting on him. And he exits. He gets to Lusitania, and of course it's some um, farty old captain, who's actually a very famous actor, and he's like, please, just a couple degrees, what do you have to lose? You know, And the thing is, is he wouldn't lose anything because he wouldn't lose any time on his destination or anything, a couple different degrees. But of course, they don't change. And he walks outside and just watches the torpedo hit the ship. And he gets back home. And when he gets back home, he's in that room again with the big cylinder and his little platform. And his buddy Harvey's like, what's up? What's going on? Man, you're already back? What's what's going on? The funny part about, uh, oh my gosh, you're already back comment, which is actually towards the end, is that to Harvey, he would have just disappeared and come right back. It would have been a second or two, right? So kind of funny. We've had a lot of uh, uh, time travel things, uh, fictional things to hone that concept a little bit better for us, right? So now he's done. He tried to change time. It's all immutable. You can't change it. And so he tells his buddy Harvey, he goes, here's a little book I bought. It's about a town in Indiana. And it's set, it's, this book talks about it in 1881. I want to go back to 1881 and go to this little town. And it's just perfect. It's like this episode Willoughby. Now, one of the things that's triggering this episode for me that I neglected to mention at the beginning is that recently in the last probably three months, I joined a Twilight Zone group on Facebook. I joined this group and I post, I want look at all the posts and they're kind of cool. Just a little bit like, what do you think about this? And that it, so I post this, my first post. And I said, if you were stuck in any Twilight Zone for the rest of your life, which Twilight Zone episode would you volunteer to be stuck in? Because some of them aren't good, right? And there was two episodes that came up. The number one episode was Willoughby. And Willoughby is about a similar arc where a dude is a, a, a marketing executive in New York. His boss is like a really pushy dude. And he just doesn't have the chops to tolerate this pressure. Every single time he goes home on the train, he ends up falling asleep. And he dreams about that turning into a train. And then this conductor walks by and goes, Will it be? Will it be next stop? Will it be? And he's like, What the hell? He's like, In the 1800s, you know? And he's like, What the hell? And he keeps looking out the window, and it's this really cool, like, super quaint town, right? And he's like, wow, man, I maybe I want to get off. He actually tries to get off once. He gets off the train all of a sudden, boom, it snaps, and he's back on the train. And it was a nice summer day in Willoughby, and uh, he's on the train, uh, and it's freezing cold outside. Funny, my one of my surnames, just a couple generations back, is Willoughby. Never knew it until I was uh, 18. So that one's about 50% of the responses. People want to get off that train and get in, and the dude actually works it out at the end, but there's a bit of a catch. I haven't ruined anything for you. Now, the, the second most popular location was this episode, No Time Like the Past. Now, the cool thing about Willoughby is uh, he stays at the end. Still, there's a catch. In this particular situation, our guy Paul Driscoll runs into a continuity problem. 
because he can't control himself. It's really sad. He tells his buddy he wants to go back to this, this town in Indiana. And he gets there, and it's just charming. He goes right into a bar, uh, orders a beer for a nickel. And he's like, man, this is going to be great. You know, and he's just, he's like, man, a nickel. He's just looking at the guy going, holy crap, I'm actually back in 1881. You know, it worked out. And then he walks over to a dude who's got a newspaper. And the newspaper says, President Garfield's going to be down the street visiting for uh, 4th of July or something. And he goes, oh, my God, it's July 1st, 1881. And Garfield's going to get shot July 2nd, 1881. These, these shows are so good for a little bit of history every once in a while. I'll never forget that. Now, technically, Garfield lived to be lived until uh, uh, September 19th of the same year. But he accidentally blurts out a few things in front of other people, and they're all kind of looking at him kind of funny. You know, and it's like, dude, control yourself. Go watch Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and find out the rules about how to do this, right? But he goes over to a boarding house because he doesn't have a place to live yet. It's where you rent a room, right? And he rents a room. It's a lovely old lady. And as he's coming out of his room, this old woman says, uh, this is Miss So-and-so. She's a teacher, and it's this gorgeous actress who's done two episodes, one with William Shatner. Not the one with the plane wing, but one where they were reading a fortune teller machine out of a, uh, a local deli and got obsessed with it. Which he is absolutely perfectly cast. The main guy is perfectly cast too. The main actor is a dude named uh, Dana Andrews. You should look up that guy's entire career. He has some beautiful uh, movies he's worked on. Uh, the woman's name is Patricia Beslin. I haven't seen her in anything but Twilight Zones, but she's great. But they're introduced by the old lady who runs a place, and then she walks off because she's a school teacher. And the old lady looks at Paul's character, you know, and says, uh, she's a wonderful woman, but she's very moral, very moral. Like, just kind of tell him, you're going to play her, you know, you're going to, she's not here to mess around. So be a gentleman, right? And of course, he's dressed to the nines and he is absolutely a gentleman. Dana was always super cool in his movies. He sort of was a uh, Humphrey Bogart 2.0. So he goes out and enjoys the town a little bit. Comes back in for dinner, and he's sitting in dinner, and he's sitting across from a guy. Now, this is 1881, so the Civil War ended in 65, so this is a good chunk of time has passed. But everyone at the table should remember, and does remember, the Civil War. A lot of loss in the Civil War, right? And it was America against Europe, basically, right? The South was Europe. Not the dopey citizens that got caught up in it but you know plantations plantation owners were always european oligarchs trying to control industry and exploit slaves and stuff and once the north figured out that oh my god we've allowed slavery to happen we got to clean this mess up that's why the slaves in the north wore suits and and dresses because they were like okay we got to show them how to survive around here and get some money in their pocket right Freedom was just the first step of rehabilitating that huge problem, right? But this dude across the table works at a bank. And it's kind of strange because he obviously can't be that much of a senior person living in a boarding house. If you're a banker, you should have your own house. He must be like some teller, some loan officer or something. They don't say. But this dude is going on and on, this diatribe about how America should basically conquer the entire world. Go for Asia first. 
should go for South America second, Africa third, and plant the American flag. He keeps saying this. It's beautiful the way Rod wrote it. Plant the American flag deep. Now, why is Paul Driscoll there? He's there because of warmongering. He's there because of the violence and the, the tyranny around the world and how stupid the, the gluttonous Americans have become, right? Gluttony is the problem of the world. And it's, it's, if you want to know if you're gluttonous, it goes like this. If you have everything that you need and you still take one more, you just lost a little point with the G-O-D. You will become gluttonous. You have bought off on a satanic way of living, right? You're now doing harm to others because that should have gone to somebody else. But Paul's character lets him just go on and on and on. And he, he's eating and Abigail, uh, his, the, the teacher's sitting right next to him. He's looking over at this dude and, and finally that guy looks at him and says, well, what do you think, Mr. Driscoll? And he reads him the riot act. And this is right out of Rod Serling's mind, okay? So this is what he says to this guy who, when he asks him about his opinion, Driscoll's trying to stay out of the conversation because he knows too much, right? And this guy's just this puny 110-pound pussy who's talking about getting everybody killed in war to plant the American flag, right? And so when he tries to dodge the bullet of getting into the conversation, this little absolute pipsqueak says to him, you some kind of pacifist, Mr. Driscoll? And here's Rod coming in like a freight train, okay? Talk about Dana Andrews. He's got a voice like leather. So Driscoll says, No, I'm some kind of sick idiot who's seen too many young men die because of too many old men like you who fight their battles from dining room tables. And the guy says, Well, I take offense to that. And I take offense as armchair warriors who don't know what a shrapnel wound feels like or what death smells like after three days in the sun or the look of a man's eyes when he's minus one leg and his blood is seeping out. Mr. Hanford, you have a great enthusiasm for planting the flag deep, but you don't have a nodding acquaintance of what it's like to bury men in the same soil. The guy threatens to leave the table. No, no. You go back to your bank and it'll be business as usual until dinner time when you give us another vacuous speech about a country growing strong by filling its graveyards. Well, you're in for some gratifying times, Mr. Hanford. Believe me, there'll be a lot of graves for you to fill in Cuba and in France, then all over Europe and all over the Pacific. You can sit on the sidelines and wave your penance because according to your definition... This country's going to get virile as the devil, from San Juan to Inchon. We'll show how red our blood is because we'll spill it. There are two unfortunate aspects of this. One is that you won't have to spill any, and the other is you won't live long enough to know I'm right. Boom. Now, what's really ironic about that moment, I don't know if it's because I saw that episode first, because I definitely saw the episode first, at least 15 years ago. Actually, that's not true. Right about 12 years ago, I was sitting in one of my favorite local uh, bar restaurants here in Huntington Beach. And I'm way back on the backside of this bar, literally, and turned two corners. There's this little old man. And I forgot what the agenda was at the time, but this old man was talking like this um, Hanford guy. 
He was just talking about throwing our troops at this one issue and just getting kind of rah-rah. He's patriotic. But he wouldn't shut up, and he just kept going on. And if you did the math on some of his strategies, blood would have been, would have been spilled. Everybody would have died. And this guy is like in his 60s, at least. A little Italian guy. I just couldn't take it anymore. I am not a guy to jump in a conversation in public like that very often. Although, as I get older, it gets a lot easier. But I laid into this dude, and I, I just looked at him. And I got a whole bar full of friends and some people I don't know, most of everybody. I, mean, I, I knew the owners, and I was a big part of this place. And I, I just laid it to him, and I said, look, man, it's easier for you to say that because you're here and you're safe. And I said, you're, you just talked about slaughtering, you know, thousands of American soldiers with just no problem at all, no hesitation at all. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Now, here's the beautiful thing that happened about that moment. I kind of felt bad because I told and he just looked at me and he was just literally getting what I was saying and he was sort of stunned. His face looked a little stunned and he's an older guy. It's, it's hard to stun an older personality. They've already seen all this crap before, right? I think we're waiting to sing later that night. But anyway, I went around the corner to go to the restroom and this guy hops down. He's really short and he grabs my arm gently and he says, hey man, you're right. I was out of line and uh, I just got carried away. It was just the most beautiful moment because he and I, you know, just hugged it out and it was like, it takes, it takes a village, man. It takes both of us to remind each other that we're getting, I mean, I'm sure I've said stupid shit in the past, similar to that. The thing I've been guilty of in the military realm is that one, I obviously super respect anybody who's willing to defend their country because they don't go in knowing that most of the words are all bullshit. What they're demonstrating to society and themselves is that they're willing to die for something. A lot of them do. Some people go in for the money and all that stuff. They don't have a, even a remote sense about patriotism, but they get it when they're in there. Trust me. But I have seen the videos of like all of our artillery, our flying fortresses, you know, the C-130 sort of thing that blows out like this huge firework thing. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it actually in action. Or you'll see like the, the Moab explode, not the one in Florida, but the one that happened during 45's era because he was just trying to put an end to that thing. And he did, you know, less than a couple of weeks. It was all done. Right? It was great. And he certainly demonstrated new guys in town. Do you want to build a tunnel? Oh my God, we'll, we'll cave in the mountain. Just test us, right? And they respect strength, you know? A lot of cultures respect strength, but they don't want to be sharing the planet with a bunch of pussies. That's just how simple it is. They're like, look, man, look at that capri pants wearing culture over there. Their men are women. Their men are, can't even hit 130 pounds because they're eating crap food and they're just buying everything that's being sold, right? So, woof, you're out of here, right? You're not fruitful products of God in their minds, right? It's all just subjective opinion. So our buddy in the episode, Driscoll, he obviously kind of gets fed up with dinner and he goes outside. And uh, Abby follows him. She's so gorgeous and so sweet and so wonderful, right? It's a fictional character, but they don't make him like that anymore. Guarantee it. But she's like, hey, uh, I really love what you said. She goes, my, it's all fictional stuff, but it's illustrating a point. She goes, my two brothers and my father were killed on the same day in, you know, some civil war thing. 
And she goes, my mother, uh, for the 15, 12 years she lived after that, she, the whole house was a funeral every day. She never got over it. So I kind of like what you said in there, you know, spilling blood is probably not the best way to get things done. But she's like, well, what were you talking about, about these other places? I mean, where are they? And he's like, oh, shit. You know, he's like thinking to himself, damn, I screwed up. I already started talking about the future. But this process continues going until Driscoll attempts to change something that he knows about in that time frame. And he ends up causing the problem by trying to stop it. Essentially, time in this uh, particular episode is not multidimensional. He's in a timeline, and if he tries to go back in time and change something, he has always been back there and always tried to change it and always failed or did affect change. What's kind of silly in the continuity of the episode, just as a digression, is that he proves Three times at the beginning of the episode, you can't change anything. And then when he goes off to 1881, his buddy Harvey's like, hey, man, don't change anything. As you change something, you create one little change that could change the whole universe, right? The butterfly in Peru changing the price of tea in China. But they just established that's not possible. So Harvey should have just been, all right, well, if you go back, then you've always been back there. Whatever you do, it's always been that way. So don't try to change anything because it's always been this way. And if you try to change it, you will be the cause of it. You know, or you'll fail, one or the other. When he finds out that he's got this issue, and it's it's kind of funny, he he disengages from the continuity of the science of the episode, and he comes back home. And what he does is he realizes that he belongs in 1963. And that's sort of where I want our brain today. I check the at least claim demographics of the channel uh, this comes from a couple different sources. I guess at some point we're telling online folks how old we are because <laughs> YouTube will tell me how old people are on average who watch the show. It's really, I don't remember telling it my birthday, but I guess maybe we did. Shit, I don't know. Or it's deriving it from Google information or something. Obviously stuff we opted in to do. But there's this thing that happens without any negative uh, news or anything, but there's this... There's this art of thinking about nostalgic, amazing moments in your past. And some of us can recall it at unbelievable levels. And it's a muscle. You you either ignore it and you don't have any memories that have any attachment to you. Or you can remember things crazy. Like I've joined a few uh, Facebook groups recently that are educational or historical about things like old video games, because for me, I was making video games in my teens. So the games that I played were very influential to me on how I was actually going to, what was I going to make next, you know? Uh, in, in like electronics uh, pages where you learn more electronics, right? It's okay to look backwards. It's okay to appreciate your past 150,000%. It's okay. No problem with that. What is dangerous is if we start to dilute our present with our past in a way that instead of perhaps taking some of the magic from the past, if you can, and injecting it into your future, making it a better place. You know, we don't do anymore. We don't go to picnics anymore. You know, uh, we're on our phones too much. Let's just make a policy. We're off our phones for this amount of hours or whatever, if you could possibly convince another human being to do that. 
you know, they keep talking about this power failure thing that's going to threaten the entire world. And it's like, whoa, go watch Escape from L.A. with Kurt Russell all the way to the end. And understand that if we lost power, it's going to be the final act of the movie Cable Guy. Where the TV goes out because the Jim Carrey character falls on a transmission tower receiver at the end of the movie and cuts off TV for everybody. And everyone has like, there's a, was a cage from tenacious D picks up a book and starts looking at it. You know, we have dehumanized ourselves with the electric world. And one of the things that is the most counterintuitive is the idea that they're going to cut off the internet, cut off power, which is their absolute control apparatus. I don't buy it. They're talking about brownouts due to AI. This is the funniest story. They're saying that um, artificial intelligence is going to get so popular in the next three years that these giant farms that have the AI, you know, neural nets are going to suck so much power down. It's going to put Bitcoin, you know, GPU farms to shame and it's going to cause brownouts. It's if that were to ever really happen, that's all fake. Give me a break. And they've got all the gigawatts uh, figured out of how much it's going to take. And they're trying to tell you that, you know, of course, we've got an idiot for a president who's trying to get rid of, you know, energy. There's more natural gas in America than I think any other place in the entire world. And they're telling you they're going to brown out natural gas. It's like, what are you talking about? We need to pump that stuff out of the ground. We need to get oil out of the ground. Otherwise, it's going to pop out of the ground. You're going to have a weird pollution problem, right? If Huntington Beach's sand sank 35 feet when they drilled all the oil, what's going to happen when they stop drilling it? And it fills back up again, because it will. Is the beach going to be 35 feet taller? I mean, we put water down there to compensate, but it could be real interesting, right? But Driscoll figured out that the president's not too bad. He learned to live with it. It's kind of a brutal, wild example of it, but we have to learn how to live in the now because that's the only thing that ever exists. The only thing that exists is now. That's it, right? I mean, there's a lot of like sort of self-help and motivational uh, books and courses and all kinds of stuff, which is talking about, you know, being more proactive by acknowledging the now. I have to agree. At the same time, if you want to accomplish something really cool, it depends on what kind of games you got to play with your mind. Sorry, I'm taking this wrapper off. I find that definitely planning a little bit in the future always makes things better. I'm always responsible for scaling things, scaling technology. You really got to think about the future for that. But that's not a big problem. That's a technical thing. They are hatching all kinds of crazy uh conspiracies right now and one of them is is that billionaires are building bunkers all right maybe i mean think about it have you been to bezos's bunker don't worry about seeing something on tv well shit they could be filming a military installation and telling you it's bezos's thing there's all this crap about uh making one in hawaii and some dude talked to the construction workers and blah, blah, blah. That could all be psyop crap, right? If they are truly doing something in secret, you wouldn't know about it. I almost can guarantee that stuff can happen without you knowing a single thing about it. Did you maybe uh, get a little box of food? Yeah, yeah I, I did. So, you know, 
just in case, but that's always, you know, I live in an earthquake zone. It's, I have to prep just for earthquakes in general. You never know. But there's a ton of little earthquakes that are going, and fairly like fives and fours going all around the world. And people who don't understand earthquakes are sending it around as a giant warning. And it's like, that's what needs to occur. We need little guys all the time. As high as we can make the, the I mean, we're not making anything happen, but the, the higher that an earthquake can be in its Richter scale, uh, which doubles every number, right? So four is half of a five, five is half of a six, or more terrifyingly, seven is twice as six, eight is twice as seven. So when Fukushima had a 9.2, you got to be, you got to understand that's like insanity, right? I've lived through a 7.1, and uh, I think, and I can't imagine that being double, and then double again, you know, crazy. They want you to be paralyzed with the present. What wasn't addressed in the Twilight Zone, because there's just not enough real estate in the storyline to, to talk about it, is this paralytic state you can be in where you feel like, what can I do? And I was just talking to a friend of mine because a lot of us that work uh, on the sidelines, you know, we, we contribute to film production stuff. One of the biggest challenges is what's coming up next? What can we work on? Blah, blah, blah. If I got a couple scripts going, who am I going to send this off to, you know? And so I was talking to her and she was just basically laying out, she's younger than me. And so she's, she's in a pocket where she could become an actress more professionally right now, but there may not be enough time to get discovered and get productions in your name unless she does it herself. So I told her, she mentioned Steve Jobs at one point, taking the, taking the reins of his life and just simply doing things irrespective to what's going on and what's been established as the system. But she almost blew through the analogy so fast that she didn't take time to appreciate how brilliant she was saying that. So I brought her right back to it and I said, you know what? You are completely correct. I study people who have been extremely successful in their lives. I don't necessarily want to be in their same category of success, but you study the archetype of what was going on. What were the circumstances, right? And one of the big things that Steve Jobs did, and others, okay, was that they ignored the outside world. Up to a point, you know, I mean, the only thing Steve needed to worry about was he wanted to make computers and sell a ton of them. So he found an artery, which is the schools didn't have any computers when he was making the Apple series. So he said, what would a school be able to afford financially? Like the financial group, the CFOs of these districts. If I brought a computer in for 900 bucks, could you buy it? Okay. And the person says, yes. He goes, well... Every dollar that you can afford to make it, you know, that you can spend with me, I can make a better computer. Could you do 1500 2000 right? And then as soon as he's got that number, he's got a target. He goes back in the lab, grabs a few folks, and kept a lot of pressure on folks who disgustingly complained about him after they became ultra famous for the accomplishments they had under his tutelage. It's a weird nerd thing where they, I guess they're jealous of his notoriety for their hard work, 
when he never said he did their work. And he's like, you need to promote yourself. I'm mentioning your name. I got your signatures inside every Macintosh case. You know, it's like, you're not unknown, okay? But I was telling my friend, I said, look, you've got to start taking action. Uh, you got to make sacrifices. There's only so much energy that's given to any being in this universe to accomplish a thing. And if you spend it running your mouth about what you're going to do, then you're blowing all the cash, right? And the thing is, is I've also studied folks that have been super successful and the amount of sacrifice they gave up, their personal time. But in the end, they don't slip and they walk out with an invention, some interesting creation. And everybody in the room goes, how do you have the time to do that? And it's like, I don't fuck around with my life. Every single second of my life is strategic. Doesn't mean I don't drink a beer and eat a sandwich at a sports bar and watch the Chiefs game. I do. But that's strategic. You know, I got to eat dinner anyway. So let's juice it up and make it cool. Then I'm right back on the computer doing something or whatever I'm doing, right? Obviously, the title is a play on words. The old saying, there's no time like the present. That's really where it ends up focusing. They played with the last word because it was a time travel episode for Twilight Zone. I'm not trying to suggest that you live in the past whatsoever. But what do they say about history? If you don't know history, then you're bound to repeat it. Okay. But we don't actually have to know the complete history of the world accurately, which is what a lot of the Tartarian folks are trying to figure out, to understand the archetypes of failure and success, of good and evil. But today, they get the moment that's in the movie Wizards by Ralph Bakshi. If you haven't seen Wizards, released the month before Star Wars was released, if not the week before, you didn't hear about Wizards because the movie Star Wars knocked it out of the theater. Luckily, I have a father that's a genius with this kind of stuff. And he got a copy of it and raised me on it, right? I don't think I saw it in the theaters. I guess I know I didn't, actually. I, I saw Star Wars instead. But we were living way away from any major city that would have carried a Bakshi movie. But what happened in this movie was that Two brothers are born of a single mother. All the evil goes to one guy, looks like Christopher Lee, with like bony, exposed forearms. And the other one looks like a Jewish rabbi um, wizard, because Bakshi's uh, got that look too. And so they go head to head in this movie. These two brothers are just going to have it out after centuries of being on this enchanted world. Of course, he lives in some desolate sort of Lich King area. And the wizard guy lives in like a tropical, beautiful mushroom land, right? But the first battle that you get to see, the good guys win, which is the wizards against the demons. These wizards, or sorry, these demons come across this, this hillside and the elves who are there just kick the shit out of them, man. Just arrows and just, just slaughter them. Then the story progresses. The evil brother starts digging up the, the Third Reich stuff. It's very interesting. And what he ends up doing is he starts building all of the tanks and all the Blitzkrieg stuff, technically, and then putting demons in them. The animation's wild. And, and Ralph had a technique where he draws on top of old footage as well, so beware that's in there too. 
If you know wizards, it's it's just utterly famous in your life, usually. But on the second war, the elves are like, yeah, no problem, man. We're going to kick the shell. These guys, no problem. And, the, you know, the demons are just kind of idiots no matter what. They're not any better fighting or anything. But they've been given more equipment now, more armor and tanks and planes and stuff. But what the old guy does, and this is so poetic for today, is he has a projector. And it's all cartoony, right? It's very nice animations, okay? But right before, right when the war gets to its peak, where the two forces are about to hit each other, he projects it to the sky. In the sky is a bunch of Third Reich footage. All this Hitler stuff. And the elves look up and they're like, oh my God, what is that? And they're busy looking up at this horrific footage, right? And the demons roll over them and slaughter them. Okay, well, the good guy wins the first round, bad guy wins the second round. Now what's going to happen, right? The movie's phenomenal, okay? That is an analogy, I think from 1977, right? That is happening today. So if you tell anybody to calm down today, well, they'll go on Telegram and go nuts. They'll go online and just look at the news and go nuts. They'll talk to somebody somewhere in the world. It's just the bear of bad news because that's just so much fun, right? If they don't bite on that stuff, they're biting on other weird stuff like like bullshit stories of mall uh, aliens in Florida. There hasn't been a single person with any credible, credible background talking about that whatsoever. And it just gets more delusional with time. But man, is this stuff getting passed around. There's a formula for your brain that they understand now. And it used to be that a PSYOP needed to be something that was going to truly deeply manipulate you on, an, on a major level for the rest of your life. And they still do those. But that's the lesser of the formula. And I would say it's barely a two-digit percentage at this point. What the big game is, is to just simply waste your time. At the end of a day, if, if a Project Looking Glass AI could calculate, and they can't, they could totally calculate this. This person, and we're all guilty of it a little bit, they launched this app and accomplished nothing in their life. A Facebook, an Instagram, a little tiny parlor game, whatever. They streamed four hours of Netflix. And at no point was any other device on where they were doing, like I program, watch stuff on TV at the same time, but I'm actually getting stuff done at the same time of doing it. A lot of you probably did the same thing. I know one of you paints amazingly and does that. If they were leaving you alone in this world, those kind of problems wouldn't really be a big issue. Because when you were done relaxing, no one was coming after you. The laws of your country weren't changing. The sheer distribution of genetics in your country isn't getting displaced by another area of the world, which has already let their area of the world go to shit. And now they're going to start voting for your leaders and just taking money for anything. And boy, when they get angry, they're going to rape and kill your kid or your wife or not conk you on the head because they want what you have. And they won't see any jail time because it's a formula, right? The focus that I was trying to instill on my friend, and I know she got it, was that the first thing you have to do is take care of your sphere of influence. For those of you who've been OG listeners, you know I've been saying this for the majority of 10 years. I have to say, when I started the episode, or started this show a long time ago in 2015, I didn't, I didn't completely understand that. 
I was just always busy, and so I didn't see it. But as time changes and what you do for a living is no longer paying the bills like it used to, you have to reinvent yourself, go off and find something else you need to do, right? Man never focused this much on world events ever in history. How could man ever focus this much? Now we're crack addicts for what's going on in the Ukraine, what's going on in uh, Yemen, what's going on in Israel and Gaza. We don't know. I mean, like we, we're getting like 10 times filtered information, distorted beyond your wildest dreams. And it was initially set in place to distort the information anyway. That's why we have a Telegram channel, Deep Thoughts channel. We try to filter out a lot of the just obsessive negativeness, right? Because we could show you all the war footage of guys getting blown to pieces in the Ukraine. We could. Bombs. Uh, well, I, like, I will personally post some missile stuff just so, you, just so you have the original footage of what they're claiming on the news to be one way or the other, just in case they start lying about what happens. Well, here's a few. I'm not showing bodies blowing up. That's unnecessary. But I am utterly certain at this point that the Gulf of Tonkin situation that started Vietnam, two events that never occurred, right? The Vietnamese Navy <laughs> attacked our Navy. What? That's like saying the Kansas sailors, you know, attacked, uh, I don't know, Spain. It's like, okay, Kansas doesn't have a coastline. Okay, so there's no sailors, right? It's like buying a bunch of snorkeling gear in the desert. Like, what? What? Why are you doing that? There's no water here, right? But they are telling you what's happening. They're telling you who did it, who got hurt. There's obviously someone you care about, technically speaking, another American, another British person, whatever country you're from, that someone in your camp got killed, shouldn't have been killed if you had a real good leadership. No one's making any phone calls right now. That's the funny thing. In America, no one's making any phone calls. They're just letting it all go to hell. If we had a leader, I mean, you realize we've got this crazy old Parkinson's weirdo guy shuffling around, slurring all of his words in the middle of a speech, and he's the president of the United States. Yeah, right, right. Go look at his inaugural speech photos. You got all these like different camera angles with different people behind him. It's like, this is all Hollywood, dude. It's all unreal. What does an enemy want you to believe when they're at the, their weakest moment? When they're the most vulnerable, what do they try to pretend to their enemy? That they're the strongest they've ever been. You can't stop them. And it, there used to be this little anomaly in America. It's calmed down quite a bit because we have access to these people a lot easier now. But it was like if a British person came to America and spoke really great English, because they still get taught English 10 times better than an American gets taught English. It's just the truth. Not only the vocabulary, but how to use it properly. But back in the 70s and 80s, when I was kind of listening to this kind of stuff, even the 90s, it was like, you're smarter than me because you can speak English a lot better than me. Sometimes it might have been true, depending on your age especially, but a lot of times it was just about, you speak English better. Well, I still program better than you. You know, I still draw video games better than you. But you can speak English better than I can. And so we got it mixed, mixed up. Why do I mention that? When you have these Telegram channels that just 
inundate you with Davos meeting minutes from Klaus Schwab, right, or whatever. This dude is talking to you like he runs the fucking world. Guess what? He doesn't. He doesn't remotely run the world. Neither do any of his constituents run the world. Oh, does that, can they crash the economy? Oh, sure. Sure. Whatever. If you're subscribing to that, how much of your money do you have in a stock market, which is more of, has worse odds of making a dollar than taking your paycheck and putting on a craps table every single time you get paid? People ask me all the time, you got Bitcoin? You got, why would I have Bitcoin? Uh, you know, my buddy, I got a buddy of mine, he's a millionaire, multimillionaire in Bitcoin, but that's because he was in Brooklyn in 2009. He got in early. Those moments are not there for me anymore. That's a lottery ticket he won. I can't get back in time and do that again. Plus, it was a shit ton of work. Ton of work this guy did in his 20s. Okay. What affects, what affects the price of Bitcoin? Anything. Anything and everything changes the price of Bitcoin in this world. Why the hell would I take any of my hard-earned units of cash and put it in that? Now, cash sucks too. It really can't be about those formulas. You have to get what you need and own it. Don't lease things that you need. Buy things that you need. Buy the maximum quality you can afford. But make sure you can afford the other stuff that you need too. They will continue to screw up the world off and on, constantly. But if you were to ask people, probably in the late 50s, early 60s, if they were ever going to get out of a world where every day they worried about atomic bombs, they would probably tell you no, because they had been in this since the bomb was dropped in 45. That fear was festered, right? They had a little bit of a baby boomer thing from 45 to about 50. 1950, where all these babies popped out because everyone was so happy to be out of the the uh, depression, which started what 15 years earlier, right? They caused major PTSD in people. But did we get out of that mess? Because we got right back into Vietnam, right, right, right after things started calming down. Vietnam was there, and no one seemed to worry about the atomic bomb during Vietnam. Why? Because the Vietnamese didn't have it, and we would never use it on them because they didn't need to. So it all ends in about 74. And then what do we have? We have 1975 to about 1990. This country of America never saw a better era than those 15 years. Now, were there negative things in those 15 years? Sure. But they were things that you you could eat at your dinner table and not have to talk about them. And everything's, you know, Iran Contra, who gives a shit, right? You try to make that important in your living room in Kansas? I don't think so. Who cares what Ollie North did, you know? Yeah, everything affects everything, but you don't need to worry about everything. Then the 90s come, we get the Gulf War, we get a bunch of pessimistic music that destroyed both white culture and black culture in the United States, and we're still paying the price today. We're so scatterbrained today, there's no more decades, right? There's no more this type of music as the music I listen to. I can't even tell anybody the music I listen to. If I try to put it in a category, I'm wrong. I'm, it's incomplete. It's like, well, it's got some of that in it, but it's got this other thing in it too. I think that's by design. But we'll get out of whatever we're in. Yes, they are doing all kinds of medical things to us at this point, but that's only if you buy what they're selling. They're trying to push disease X out right now. 
but I don't think anyone's buying what they're selling. No one's going to freely, uh, no one's going to like probably with any remote intelligence, which people who don't have any brains, no, they don't contribute to the world as it is. I mean, the worst thing they might do is vote badly, right? But the boy who called Wolf, called Wolf, and it killed 10 million people in one database, which is the official database, and all the neighboring databases have it 80 to 100 million people were slaughtered by this thing. And that's just the deaths right after the regiment, right? They're now saying that one in three, was it the, the CEO of Pfizer said that one in three people are going to die in cancer now? How could he be right? If normal attrition of the human existence is just going to continue as normal. It doesn't happen that way. Again, I go to my, the obituary, my hometown newspaper online, just to see who's coming and going, you know? The amount of people passing away in their 80s and 90s and hundreds is off the chart. But after that, there's a gap because all those people are gone. And they're, they've all passed away in their 60s and 50s. It's the new food. It's the new idea of what health is. So how do you fix that for you? You take your sphere of influence and you quarantine the thing. Remember, you're good at what you do. So if you take in information that's bad, then you're going to put it in your brain. And now you got to sort it out at night when you lay your head down on your pillow. Who wants that nightmare? Don't do it. There's Telegram channels that put the news, the fake news in their channel, just every single bit of like frustrating liars, big giant, you know, troughs of this stuff. We filter all that crap out because we want you to put stuff in your brain that works. So you don't have to filter it out. I actually have to communicate with our admins. I don't want just, you know, videos that just make you feel horrible. Why the hell would I want you to see crap like that? You know those people exist that say things that you don't agree with, and they're delusional in some cases, they have mental illnesses. Okay, we'll go someplace else for that, because uh, this is an area where you should be growing constantly, should be improving your, your existence. And you don't have to agree with anything, but it's just, okay, there's a funny little video where a dog's got you know, six butterflies trying to trying to land on his nose and he's just rolling around in the sun. He's like, it's the greatest little moment of his little life, you know. Every once in a while you need that too. Just remind you of what God's world is really like, right? Now, I got a little bit of time left, so I'm going to address something here. There have been a lot of people over time that had a hard time ever transitioning into uh, believing in God. Like Stephen Fry, was the, he's the actor who was in Jeeves and Wooster. And I think he was Jeeves, right? And he's, a, he's an amazing actor. He's uh, he's kind of done with his career at this point, I think. But he get a, he gave an interview once, and he said, "I can't believe in a god. I'm an atheist." And, and the person said, "Well, why do you? What made you have that decision?" And he said, "Well, you know, I see children that die, uh, horrible deaths and illnesses and things, and I just don't think if there was a god, that a god would allow that to occur." And when I heard that, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't think you really are your body. So I think that you're your soul. And maybe at some cosmic level, if you live forever, those little short lives that a person might be living in a body that's, that's suffering, maybe there's a lesson to be learned with that. 
But now it got a lot harder. If you would have that sort of thinking today, I'm just going to pose the problem first, then I'm going to give you my personal opinion about the second. We didn't know about trafficking like we do today. We didn't know about Epstein's Island today, uh, back then like we know about it today. And I think that once you dig a little bit deeper, you understand that everything that's been exposed to the public is like a molecule of ice on the top of a big, giant, inconceivably huge iceberg that goes underwater. I mean, you can't even conceive of how deep this iceberg goes on that subject matter. Over the last year and a half, two years, I have seen testimonies from children that just uh, utterly break my heart. I saw a video, and I don't know if I mentioned, I think I maybe mentioned this in my chaos report on Rumble. I'm going to give you a tiny tidbit of it here. I found a video, uh, it was all in German. And I don't know literally what's wrong with my ancestry where sexual perversion is like, it's a pastime over there. It's nuts. For every massage parlor America has, they've just got S&M places just right next to a 7-Eleven. It's just crazy over there. I disapprove because it, it incubates a perversion that gets tired quickly and then it focuses on children second, in my opinion. This little girl, six, seven, eight years old, no more than that. She's speaking in German. It's all being translated. She has this weird woman off to her side trying to comfort her. But almost in kind of like, you need to accept this kid kind of way. But this kid is sobbing, hysterically crying through her words. It's a, it's a, it's a sound that if you, it doesn't even matter what the kid's talking about. It's a sound that if you're remotely a human being that lives for good, and if you have any maternal instinct to protect children, which I've got like popping out of my hair follicles, right? This is horrific. Just the sound. But this little girl is talking about having witnessed a satanic ritual where another child was murdered in front of her. And her words are basically paraphrased down to, why are they doing this? I can't understand why they're doing this. And she, the stuff she is describing in detail, I would say... I could only share it with my most iron gut male friend. And I would have to know that that person has previously been exposed to this content before even repeating it, word for word. That kid is not a unique child, unfortunately. The only thing that makes that child unique is that she wasn't a part of the ritual to the point she could actually utter these words and have survived it, right? Now that we have gone back and we have looked at organized religion in every category of at least European rule, we know that this has been going on for millennia, several millennia, right? Stephen Fry was talking about uh, illnesses. When you add to it these rituals that go on every single day in every major city, in some rural cities and towns around the world, and you, th you look up at God and you say, 
What's going on? Right? What's going on? That you could allow this layer of existence, basically your right hand man, it, it, it fell and became this other thing, just metaphorically speaking. Uh, you should have taken him out a long time ago. If there's really a devil, you should have taken him out. We'll screw up things all by ourselves. And that's what's actually taking place, in my opinion. We have free will, and that's a gift and it's a curse. The idea that we can't stand up for our countries, we can't stop immigration, we can't stop... This is like total... When you say illegal immigration and you treat it like it's, like it's not illegal... Okay, what other laws can we just stop following now, right? You can't have law of the jungle. That used to be the way it was. And, the, and organized religion before it got corrupted was the first time man ever had a protective layer of consciousness within man to say, hey, that dude's beating up that guy. Let's stop that. That's wrong. So-and-so stole something from someone else. That's wrong. Let's create a Ten Commandments and we'll say God gave it to Moses on the hill. At least people will believe that. They can't even read and write their own name. Sure, they'll believe it. And at least we get some law and order around here. I'm going to mix two things together because we're going to put that, that little sentiment on pause before I get to my opinion about this. I just revealed a little bit of it. There was a time when a buddy of mine joined Peace Corps. I helped him. I had to write a referral for the guy. He's my buddy, Brian, who I mentioned in a previous episode, who had an aura um, witnessed by another woman. He got in the Peace Corps and he went over to Africa and he, I think he really enjoyed it. I've rarely met anybody who's joined Peace Corps and didn't come back really uplifted by what they were able to accomplish. But I mentioned it to a friend of mine. I said, you know, I'm thinking about that too. It sounds like I want to really help people and it sounds cool. And my buddy said, what if I told you you could do better staying here, earning money, and sending it over there to people who have no other way to live but to go over there. Now, my buddy Brian was a genius guy. He, he didn't need to go over there for money. He just really felt it in his heart, and I, I love him for it. I talked about the sphere of influence, right? You should create your sphere of influence and quarantine it. And I mean really actively quarantine it. What are you allowing anyone to say to you through media or in person? You got to readjust your friend circles sometimes. This guy's toxic to me. Don't want him around me. We have an inconceivable amount of darkness to digest and fix. But there's that old saying about living by example, right? If you are happy because inside your bubble, which doesn't mean you don't help your neighbor, it doesn't mean you're not engaged in the world whatsoever. It just means that as you perceive the world, it's sort of my old analogy. Pretend like you're an alien from another planet who's simply come down here to view humanity and see humanity in this weird era. You don't have to be vested in fixing anything. But you know that because you come from a world that doesn't have these problems, it's kind of like Star Trek when they would always go down to a planet that's got a bunch of issues. They usually use their history of Earth, having gone through the same issues, to teach a new culture. This is not a good idea. Another parallel analogy I've heard that feeds into this. I'm going to give you a few things to kind of incubate up into your head here because you're making choices, right? It used to be that parents had balanced homes, right? Because society was balanced. One parent had to work, usually the father, brought home all the money, and the mother took care of the babies that they had because 
actually having babies was a respected paradigm. And then, of course, in the 70s, the Rockefellers got everybody taxed, got the other half of the equation in there, made a woman feel inferior for raising good kids, which is the hardest thing in the world to do, and made them feel superior if they work for the man, a game the men were trying to get out of as soon as possible, hence retirement early, right? You were more successful in life when you retired. But when things got out of whack in the 80s and 90s, there was this thing where parents, uh, and this has happened throughout time, of course, for especially less fortunate areas of the world, the parents would sacrifice everything for their children. And the parents sometimes would resort to alcohol. They'd be violent towards their children. And so the kids started losing. So I had another wise person tell me, look, if you want to be a good parent, it really starts with your happiness first. And again, we're not talking about doing meth and a bunch of other crazy crap. Get a nice balanced sphere around you as a parent so that you're happy and fulfilled, whether you be a single parent or married. Hopefully your spouse is on board with this too if you're married. Then you can provide for your children properly because mommy and daddy are happy. Mommy and daddy are living by example. It's easy to understand that analogy when I apply it to a family metaphor. It's a lot more difficult sometimes to apply that to a sociological level of a citizen is happy, a citizen has their act together, and they inspire others to be the same way. Well, how come you're so happy, man? You know, They may not say it in those words to you, but they're trying to figure you out. Regardless if my life is stressful or not, I try to exude the best frequency I can possibly do because I want to have that frequency personally, right? I really police the content that I ingest. Because I'm at a hub of this show, I do see more than I probably should see, but I also have built up some muscles to reject a lot of the negativity, prohibiting it to become a part of my fabric. But I still have to fight the demons like everybody else, right? The black apples, they go see my episode called Black Apples. It has to do with the outer influences that aren't you projecting negative visions and skepticism and suspicion and paranoia. You have to not let those in. Those aren't your thoughts. Those are outside thoughts. And the more intelligent you are, and especially I write screenplays, so for me, I'm always thinking of new stories, so it's easy for me to manufacture potentially non-existent circumstances that will make me feel like something wrong is going on when nothing's wrong going on, right? These are tough times for seemingly an infinite number of reasons. Humans, I think, at least for, if I study my grandparents alone, which were very well-balanced people. But there were things in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s that you simply didn't talk about. If something was going wrong, men most definitely became super stoic and just, just kept it inside them, and then they were very grumpy. Instead of just maybe pulling someone along, pulling someone aside in the family and going, look, I just need someone to talk to. And just let us have it, and we're just listening more than talking, and just they get it, they get it off their chest, right? Well, it doesn't happen back then. It didn't happen back then. But today we are much more open. But there is a there's an attrition of learning the truth, and there's an attrition of acknowledging how you feel because you could take something that if you ignored it, it might go away tomorrow. But if you focus on it, you can maybe manifest more negativity in that direction. 
you know, we, there's a lot of, you know, sci-fi and, and, and existential conversations that we experience and we'll have even talk on this show. But one of the concerns I have is that we are in a multidimensional world where you're picking the next second of your life. And if you have a bad frequency, you're picking the next second where things are going to go wrong. So it's important you filter what could possibly make you pick the wrong second for you. You got to pick the good second next. And it's tough. And you make a bunch of mistakes as you're doing the right stuff, right? Anyway, so let's do what we can to compare notes. I want you guys to be the happiest, most fulfilled people that exist on this planet. And it doesn't mean I think for one second you're not going to go through the eye of the needle once a year, once a day. You could be in a weird state. But just make sure that the vector you're on is in your control so that you can pick the proper second for yourself. I want you to learn what this Paul Driscoll character learned in this Twilight Zone. You do live in the now. And there's really no way to escape it. We don't have time machines. We have to figure out that societies have gone through these horrific phases in the past and come out on top. Even America itself, which, you know, is the only thing I really know intimately. I apologize to all the other listeners, but you have your own version of this. Your country has gone through horrific states where everyone thought it was never going to end. You know, there's a lot of news coming out. Well, a lot of history being revealed in the back channels about the orphan trains of the late 1800s, where kids were being literally (laughs) birthed into these incubation clinics and then put on trains and sent west to fulfill all the labor requirements of factories, which is why they eventually had labor laws passed against child labor. We survived. We survived completely. And there was always this layer of crazy underneath. Always these satanic groups. Bohemian Grove was in the 1800s, man where artists took boys up into the forest to rape and kill them. That's how that thing started. Okay, there's photographs. These Look at the early photographs. Look at the, uh, every old man had a little kid on their lap, and the kids' faces are just, just horrified, right? That's always been going on. But we're not going to be able to fix those problems until we have more of us quarantined and happy, Figuring out what we, you don't need much in life anyway, right? Don't be gluttonous. If you have a household right now that's full of more than what you need, I I dare you to experiment with giving away, giving away what you don't need. Just give it away. You got too many shoes? Give away a few pairs before they're shitty, before no one can wear them anymore because you wore holes in them, right? Now, maybe you have a reason for having 10 pairs of shoes. But if you got 11th pair, give it away. Nothing else. Go buy yourself a new one. Make sure the new, make sure the old one goes out so someone can wear it. The 90s are over, right? Rich kids going in and stealing all the good clothes so they can look like bums. So that anyone walking into those places have to get the worst clothing. That was a great era, right? Absolutely mind-blowingly idiotic, right? Help other people too, right? Find someone that needs something that you do and don't charge them any money. If you're an accountant, do someone's taxes for free. Maybe you, maybe you actually do it for people that are super in need, but maybe you just do it for your neighbor. Whatever. They may not even appreciate it initially, you know. You try to want to you want to probably find people who appreciate it, but there's a guy out there that's got a YouTube channel. All he does is mow lawns that are overgrown and crappy. 
And everybody turns him down immediately. And he goes, no, 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 it's, I have a channel on YouTube. I make money off my ads. And uh, it's just, I'll do it for free. And these people just feel amazing. You don't think they pay it forward some way? Some don't, some will. Has anyone ever helped you without you having to ask? Uh, it's rarely happened in my life, but my whole life has been based on doing that for no money. And they may give you money in the end. You can take it if you want. Make sure they've got it to give. But there's a special feeling when you don't take it and you don't expect it, not even subconsciously. They say it takes a village. Well, I don't know what the hell you call it now, but it's, it takes a bunch of us to help out. I know you feel me. If you haven't been to deepthoughtsradio.com, there's all kinds of videos on this kind of stuff. If you're new to the show, just understand, if you can type in the search field on the website a subject that I have not covered, let me know in the comments so I can make that video. There's all kinds of historical characters I would love to cover. It takes a tremendous amount of research because I want to do them solids if I do that. So that's the only weak spot I've got. I know there's hundreds of people out there I should be covering. It just is compromised by my time availability. But there's audio, video, a little store up there for some funny shirts. I make no money from that store. The money, the prices I'm charging is like a buck over what I I have to pay to get them made. So enjoy yourself. But to those of you who join me on Patreon, just understand you get the drops usually before everybody else. You definitely get the audio the second it burns. Audio goes first. And the video takes hours and hours to encode and upload and then encode on the site. And then I got to clean it all up. And then I push it out on a certain hour of the day. So you get a little bit of extra with that. Some of you just send me little uh, contributions on PayPal. Thank you so much. You know, I have found out how to reply to you directly because at first they were hiding who you were and I couldn't even say thank you. It was, it was a horrific thing. But I'll put your name in the credits too. Be a part of history. If that appeals to you, because you are. Anyway, take care of yourself and someone else and I'll see you in the next Deep Thoughts. Over now.